King Jesus. We just sang about King Jesus, which was very appropriate. The title of my message this morning is, Who is the King of Your Life? And this is something that's really been stirring in me in different ways for the last few weeks, actually. And when that happens, I generally end up not knowing exactly what I'm going to do. So uh, <clears throat> finishing things up actually this morning. I hope the prayer team was praying for me as we went into this. But I want to I want to challenge us and encourage us. You know, King Jesus, Savior and Lord. Those things mean something. Actually, they mean a lot. They kind of tell us who He is. It's part of His character. He is Lord. He is Savior. He is our King. And what I want to do is start with a story from the Scriptures. And it's a little bit longer story. I'll try to go quickly through it. But I think it it shows us what can happen when we get our eyes off of who the King really is and who He should be. So I'm going to go back almost 4,000 years to begin the story with a man named Abraham. Hopefully, most of you are familiar with at least parts of the story because I can't go into detail. 4,000 years could take a while. But about 4,000 years ago, God chose a people. He went to Abraham. Abraham didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. He didn't do some wondrous, miraculous thing. And God said, you know, that's the guy. I think him. I think I'll pick him because he really deserves it. No, totally by grace. God chose Abraham and he said to him, you and your descendants are going to be my people. I choose you. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will be your king. And Abraham responded and many, many years pass. And we finally, about 600 years later or more, Moses is finally leading the people out of captivity from Egypt. And Moses is going to take them to the promised land. God is still in the process of of fulfilling his promises that he made way back to Abraham and to his people. And when God made those covenants with his people, there was always two sides to the covenant. You know, you, you follow what I want you to do. You be my people. You surrender to me. Let me be your leader. I will be your God. And you'll be blessed. Now, an interesting thing about this is, even when Israel rebelled, God was still their God. They just weren't obedient. They, there's nobody, no man, nobody can remove God from his throne. We can think that happens, but he's always there. But he may remove or pull back his, his hand of influence, withhold blessings, all in attention to draw us to him. Moses dies, and then there's a man by the name of Joshua who is his, his uh, mentee, if you would. And Joshua is going to finally bring him into the promised land. And he does this. And there's many years of conquest and battles and war. And, and the nation of Israel itself... Um, really begins to decline because of the unfaithfulness of the people. Keep in mind all the things that God had done for them, yet they were unfaithful. They became this kind of almost loosely attached 
group of 12 different tribes. And there was continually sin, continually unfaithfulness. It was like there was this continuous cycle of idolatry would take place. They would be intermarrying with the pagans contrary to God's word. All of these things would uh, lead to foreign domination. They'd be taken into captivity. And this cycle would go on and on and repeat itself. And then God established the judges. Depending on how you count in the Scripture, there was a time where there was like 12 different judges. Some of them, you're maybe very familiar with their names. Othniel was the first one, but you might remember Deborah was one of the judges. Um, Gideon was one of the judges. Samson was one of the judges. But God put judges in place to continually bring deliverance to his people, try to bring them back to himself. The judges is kind of a a term that we could maybe misunderstand a little bit because when we think of judge, we may just think of somebody who always makes a, a decision or a judgment based on something. And they did do that, but it was way more than that. If military leaders were needed, the judges acted as the military leader. These were the men and women, Deborah, that God would have go to the priests to seek God's will and direction. So there was many years of these judges that God used to lead his people. And again, the cycle continued anyway. And finally, we get to a place in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. We read some very powerful words, and I think they're evident and effective even today. It says this, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. They didn't have a leader. And they all decided in their own eyes what was right. What was the right thing to do? Now, some people try to take that and say, well, that's because what they did then was they would study the Torah, they'd study the the law, and they would try to do the right thing based on the law. Most would interpret this differently than that and say they just looked at what they were doing and what they wanted to do and did what was right in their own eyes, leading to more chaos and unfaithfulness. Samuel was the last judge. You read in the book of Samuel, he was the last judge, but he was also a prophet, and he was also a priest. Samuel was the last judge, and he got old. So we went through all these judges, all this history for hundreds of years of Israel, and Samuel's old, so he's going to do something. He's going to appoint his two sons to be the judges. Now, if you study the Old Testament, one of the discouraging things you'll see is so oftentimes mighty men of God that got used, their families were a disaster. This is another one of those examples. Samuel was an amazing man of God, used mightily over and over by God, a mighty prophet, a mighty prophet, a priest, a judge. But his two sons didn't follow after him. They took bribes. They were corrupt. They were evil. And the people recognized this even in what would look like Samuel's maybe blindness towards his own family. He was going to put them in the place, but the people came to him. Israel, the leaders gathered together, and they came to him. And they they said these words, your sons aren't like you. This is where everything changes. 
your sons aren't like you. So what we want you to do is appoint a king like all the other nations have, that he would rule over us. You just read past that quickly. You think, okay, makes sense. The judges are no good. The sons are terrible. And it wasn't so much that they asked for a king because that doesn't surprise God at all. You may remember way back in Deuteronomy when we were looking through that a number of weeks ago, in Deuteronomy 17, there was kind of a prophetic word given. It said, when you enter the land of the Lord your God that he is giving you and you take possession of it and you've settled in it and you were going to say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint a king that the Lord chooses. So this didn't surprise God. But just because it was prophesied doesn't mean that it was approved in what he wanted. So the people came and said, we want a king. And then it got really bad, like all the nations around us. We want a king that's going to rule over us. We want to be like them. It's almost as if they forget who God is as the sovereign God who has done amazing things in their life. He chose them. They didn't deserve it. He provided for them. He did miracles. He brought them out of Egypt, their forefathers, brought them into the promised land, defeated enemies, amazing things. And it's like, uh, no thanks. We want a king like everybody else has got. Well, this didn't set well with Samuel. Because Samuel was human, and I think he responded a lot like we would if we were him. You're rejecting me. So he goes to God and says, God, I can't believe these people are doing this. And God says these words to him. Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. They're rejecting me as their God. He says, so what I want you to do, Samuel, is listen to him. I want you to give them what they want. It's an amazing thing about God. You know, He is God. He's the creator of the universe. He's a sovereign God. But He will not force His will on us and override our will. He never did it in the Old Testament. He has not done it in the New Testament. And He says we're going to give them what they want. And they should have known better. I mean, you know how sometimes we know better? We do things anyway. One of the judges was named Gideon. Many of you will remember the story about Gideon. But Gideon, they were impressed with Gideon and all the things that he did when he was the judge. So they came to him and said, Gideon, we want you to be king. And we want your sons and your grandsons after you to become our king. And Gideon says, I'm not, not, I'm not having anything to do with this. Nothing. He said, the Lord will rule over you. So they should have known better. Shouldn't we all, right? But they had forgotten who the true God was. In a sense, when you look at this, to make a little application without going too far to us, they decided that government and politics would probably be better than God. Who's going to be our rescuer? Who's our king? Well, God, in his mercy, says, we're going to give you what you want, but here's the deal. I want you to be informed. 
I want you to make an informed decision. I want you to know what you're getting yourselves into. I'm not going to read all the Scripture, but he says these things to him. This king that I'm going to give you, he's going to be a taker. He's going to take your sons for military service. He's going to take your sons for plowing and reaping the land that he's going to take from you. He's going to take your sons and have them make weapons and build his chariots. He's going to take your daughters, and they're going to become perfumers and cooks and bakers for him. He's going to take your fields and the best vineyards that you have and your best olive groves. He's going to take them from you and give them to his servants. He's going to take one-tenth of all of your seed and all of your vineyards, and he's going to give those to your servants. He's going to take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, your donkeys. He's even going to take your donkeys for the work. And he's going to take a tenth of your flock, and you yourselves will become his servants. Wow, maybe I should reconsider my request, Lord. I'm not sure that I want that kind of king. That's not how they responded. Samuel told them all of this, coming from the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 8, 19, the people, here's what happens. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us, to go out before us and to fight our battles. And the Lord simply said, give them their king. Scary. They would never, ever, ever have needed a king. They wouldn't have even needed judges if they had just relied on God as their faithful king. It wouldn't have been necessary, none of it. And it's kind of interesting, and it's not directly applicable, but if you remember when Jesus was standing before Pilate, and Pilate spoke to the people, here we are, a thousand years later than this event with Israel, and Pilate says to the people, here's your king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away. We have no king but Caesar. They rejected the King of Kings. The title, as I said, was Who's the King of Your Life? I hope that story lays a foundation a little bit of what can happen when we decide somebody should be on the throne of our life besides Jesus. Because we do. Who's on the throne? Who's the king in our life? Similarly to God's chosen people, only it's even better for us, God chose you and me. God chose us. We didn't deserve to become his children. We didn't earn it, never can. None of us could ever be good enough. But God chose us, extended the grace for us to receive the invitation to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And he doesn't just call us his people. He calls us his children. He calls us his sons and his daughters. He calls us the bride of Christ, his son. He calls us joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What an amazing privilege it is to know him as our Savior and Lord. 2 Timothy, verse 1, verse 9, it says, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling. 
wasn't our idea. It wasn't our idea. If he hadn't invited us, he hadn't wooed our heart. And then if he hadn't given us the grace to accept, we wouldn't have. We couldn't have. Not, neglect, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. We need to remember as Christians, we are saved from something. That's absolutely true. We are saved from the power of sin, the power of death. We are saved from the fire of hell. But we're also saved to something. And what we're saved to is an absolute 100% surrender to Jesus Christ. That doesn't get talked about near as much because it involves a little bit of work on our part. For our salvation, Jesus is the Savior. He did everything. All we have to do is receive the gift. But to surrender requires things from us. He'll give us the grace. We can't do it on our own. We have the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and teach us. But it does require effort. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, it says these words. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter spoke those words in his sermon, and immediately after those words, the people go, what must we do to be saved? Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah, Savior and Lord. It's who he is. In the Scripture, in the New Testament, he is called Lord Jesus Christ over 80 times. Lord Jesus Christ, over 80 times. It's who he is. He's not just the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. He is also Lord. That's who he is. We allow him to be that in our own lives. So often, we're like ancient Israel, and we want to remove him from the throne. We want to put other things in the throne. Hopefully, not most of us don't want to put governmental figures in the throne, but we do. Like they're going to save us. They're going to be our salvation. But I think our biggest danger is I put me in the throne. I'm in charge. You know, I could even go, okay, wait a minute. The Bible does say I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places at the right hand of God. That sounds like a pretty cool throne I'm in. No, it's not my throne. His throne, I'm seated with him. If I forget that, I am putting myself as king of my life. We need to find the solution to this. Like so many things in Scripture, the solution is a simple one. Implementing it's really hard. What's the solution? Total surrender to God. What does it look like? How do we live like that? Why would we or should we have a life surrendered to the King of Kings, the King of Je- King Jesus? We're going to look in Romans chapter 12 for a few minutes. We'll go really fast. My notes are way too long. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, probably verses familiar with many of you here. But I want to just give a little tiny background to Romans 1 through 11. Paul is doing some of the most amazing teaching doctrinally you'll find in the Scripture. He's laying out 
what it means to be saved, the need for salvation, how to get saved. He's talking about the sanctification, this process where the Holy Spirit is kind of changing our life and transforming us. He's going through all of this kind of more from a theological aspect. And it's like he comes to chapter 12 and he says, here's what it all looks like. Let's get practical. Here's what it all looks like. So I'm going to read uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to break apart the verses a little bit. And I apologize for how fast I'm going to go in advance. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. First part of verse 1, 1a. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Paul is using a word here, beseech, in the Greek. It indicates it is a very urgent, personal request. He's saying, listen to me. Listen to me. Get this right. This is urgent. I'm begging you. I want you to come alongside me. Do and live like I am living so that we can take a stand for Christ and a stand for the gospel. He says, this is urgent. I beseech you to do this. This is no time for half-hearted Christians. This is what he's saying then. I think it certainly applies for today also. We think it's time. There's an urgency. There should be an urgency. I hope you feel an urgency in your spirit in the culture we're living in today, what's taking, taking place all around us. Well, feeling an urgency about what's going on around us should mean we are urgent and we respond. And Paul is saying, I'm inviting you, I'm exhorting you, I'm beseeching you to make a move here. The times are desperate. Are you desperate? Is what he's saying. What he's saying to us even today, the times we live in are desperate. Are you desperate? True Christianity is not just a set of beliefs that I have in my head. They are important, but that's not what true Christianity is. True Christianity is the life of Christ being lived out in surrendered lives of those who call themselves followers of Jesus. There are so many people who claim to be Christians, and they have some answers here. They have information. They know some stuff. But true Christianity to be represented to the world around us needs to be lived out in the lives of surrendered people, you and me. And this was Paul's burden. And he continues on, and then he says, therefore, I beseech you, therefore, that therefore is like the first 11 chapters, you were on one side of the room or one side of a wall, therefore is the door, and now you're walking into the other room. He says, therefore, therefore, Therefore what? Therefore because of salvation. Therefore because of sanctification. Therefore because of all the things Jesus has done for you. Therefore, we should live a surrendered life. And he's going to expound on it as he goes further. And he says, therefore, these therefores, they are the mercies of God. Therefore, the mercies of God. By the mercies of God, we should do these things. Therefore. But it comes with a price. In verse, the second part of verse 1, he says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He is using here, we can miss this, but he is using a very graphic image. 
the Jewish people would have understood. He is using the image of taking that sacrificial lamb and the priest taking that lamb, inspecting that lamb, killing that lamb, sacrificing that lamb, and burning the lamb completely up on the altar. He's using a very graphic image that we can easily miss. And he says, what we're going to do here, present. It's the same word used when the Levitical priest did it. And he says, present this, and you're going to give it over completely and entirely. You're going to take that lamb, and when we get through here, there's nothing left of the lamb. It's all gone. But we're called to be a living sacrifice, but we are to surrender completely and give it all over to God as surrendered to him as our king, as our Lord. They were, the lamb would be completely consumed by the fire. And he says, do this with your bodies as a living sacrifice. If we want to truly be vessels that God can reveal himself through, that Jesus can reveal himself through, Paul's saying here, we have to be surrendered. That's the only practical way for him to truly reveal himself through us. Otherwise, what people see in the world see is us. And God wants us to represent Jesus to the world. Back in those days, we've, we've heard this phrase sometimes, I'm sure, Gnostics were a cult, basically. And there was an aspect of Gnosticism that they called Gnostic dualism. We're not going to get into all that, but I think you'll understand real easy what it talks about. They believed that there was material and immaterial. And they believed when it came to me as a person, I can believe one thing, but this body thing of mine, it's just evil. Nothing I can do about it. Therefore, I can believe the Word and I'll live like the world. Nothing to do about it. We don't call it Gnostic dualism today, but just think how much of that we see today. Oh, yeah, I believe this. I believe that. I, yeah, I know what the Bible says. And then we always often follow it up with the word but. I know this is wrong, but. I know the Bible says I should not do this, but. And we could go down a long laundry list that I hope you're going through in your mind that I'm not going to bother with. But in our culture, it's everywhere, and it's in the church, and it's permeating the church more and more and more. We don't call it Gnostic dualism, but that's what it really is representing. We say one thing, and we live another way. In the times we're living in, are we acting like ancient Israel? And we're taking Jesus off the throne of our life and putting ourselves on that throne. Present yourselves, your body, as a living sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice? Holy and acceptable to the Lord. Now, before you start correcting me that none of us can live a perfect holy life, I give you that. We do, but it's a goal. Holiness is not a denomination. It should be a representation in the fruit of a life that's totally surrendered to God. Holiness speaks of purity. We know, probably know most of us, when the priest took that lamb, he inspected that lamb 
from the tips of his nose and his ears all the way to the tip of his tail and the bottoms of his feet. He would check its eyes, its ears, its nose, its mouth, its skin. He would check everything. It was to be without blemish. Perfect, without blemish. And that's what holiness looks like. We can't do it on our own. We will fail and fall. But it should be a priority of the surrendered life. And he finishes that section of Scripture which says, this is your reasonable service. That word reasonable is the Greek word we get the word logic from. But Paul is saying, hey, it's only logical. Think about this. Think about what Jesus did for you. Think about all the things he has done in your life. Think about it. If you really understand that he saved you from death, the power of sin, he saved you from going to hell and spending eternity with him, think about that. The only logical thing to do is surrender your life to him. Surrender. How do we do it? We've been on a roll the last few weeks. Let's talk practical. We're going to get even more practical. How do we do it? Paul tells us. He says, gives us a negative first. He says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be like the world. We are aliens in this world. We're the strange ones. We don't need to prove it, but we are the strange ones. We are aliens in this world. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be, con- trans- don't be conformed. You know, we wanted to put it in English, language, contemporary. Stop it. Just quit it. Don't do that. That's what Paul's saying. Don't be like the world. We are not of the world. Stop it. Stop letting the world system determine the way you're going to live your life. Now, Paul, I hope he, I don't I hope Paul was a little bit stern because I feel like I'm sounding harsh, but it's encouraging. I'm trying to encourage. Stop it. It'll be the best thing you ever did. If we stop it, don't do it. Friendship with the world, what did Jesus say? It's enmity with God. We're friends with the world, we're enemies of God. I don't want to be his enemy. I'd rather be the enemy of the world. I want to be God's friend. Worldliness is obviously one of the greatest problems we face in walking out our lives. But he then goes on and says, this is what don't be conformed to, but he says, be transformed. Be transformed. It comes from the Greek word that we get morph, the word morph, morphism, metamorphosis. It's only used three places in the Scripture. It's kind of interesting where they're used. They're used two different Gospels where Jesus is at the transfiguration when he's being transformed into this amazing image. And the other place it's used is when it's talking to, about us, that we are being transformed into the image of Christ. We are being transformed by the Holy Spirit. We are being transformed by the Word of God. We are being transformed in the image of Jesus. That's the goal of the surrendered life. Growing more and more like Him. The more and more we are like Him, the more and more He will move through us. And the more and more impact we will have on the world around us. As the Holy Spirit works. And He goes on by, how do we do this? By renewing of your mind. How do we renew our mind? By the washing of the Word of God. And not just reading the Word. I mean, absolutely. But there's a scripture in Philippians that I want to share with you. 
It's like God saying, well, God, I, my mind just wanders. What should I think about? Here's what you should think about. He says this, finally, my brothers, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. I just interpret all that I wouldn't do saying, quit watching the news and get off social media. It's pretty hard to stay focused on positive things in our culture today because you're being bombarded. We all are continually with nothing but negative. And then we wonder why we get a little depressed. Here's my prescription. Think on those things. Think on those things. And renew your mind with the Word of God. That is the Word of God. Renew them. That's how we get there. The surrendered life is a process that requires us to be continually renewing our mind by the Word of God. Continually. It doesn't stop. Why do this? That we could prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The word prove there means for us to be able to understand experientially. Do this so you'll get it because you're going to experience living in the will of God. Prove it. Know it. Experience it. Know this will. And then he goes on and the will of God is this package. I don't want us to separate his good and his perfect, pick them apart. It's all one package. But when we look at them individually, these different attributes, he says he's good. God only wants good for you. Can I surrender my life to the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ when I know he only wants good for me? It would seem logical. I know when I take control, it's not always good. Things don't go well. It's good. And then he says, acceptable. That word acceptable there is like well-pleasing. His well-pleasing will. The life that is filled with that unspeakable joy that the Scripture talks about. It's, a, it, it's full of the glory of God when we're walking in his will. The, it's so hard for us to understand with our natural minds some of these things because they seem so contrary the way we think naturally. But what could be more fulfilling? What could make you and me feel more joyful, more at peace, than knowing we are living out the pleasing will of God in our lives? What great pleasure that would bring to each one of our lives. When we're surrendered to Christ, and to God's will, it's acceptable even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when it's challenging, even when I don't fully understand it. Anybody ever been on any of those places? But if I'm surrendered to Him, trusting that His Word is true, that He's good, and His will is His will for my life, if it's challenging and I don't understand it, difficult, that's okay. Because my trust isn't in me, it's in Him. The surrendered life. You know, we as a church embrace the scripture of John 10.10. 10, that Christ came to give us an abundant life in Christ. An abundant life here in this life, but also abundant life in eternity. This abundant life, this joy of the Lord, the peace that we can have in the middle of whatever's going on around us, 
and having this intimate relationship with him. It's acceptable. He wants us to be pleased as we please him. And lastly, it says perfect. Perfect really there means complete. The will of God. You and I can only see what's right before us. We can look back and do some remembering, but we don't know what the future will bring. God's will is complete. It's perfect. He knows the past, the present, and your future and my future. That's why I can surrender my life to him. He knows. He sees from an eternity perspective that you and I can't possibly see from. Only those who are surrendered to him will eventually discover this perfect, completed will. The challenge is from Paul, he's saying, don't fall short. Don't fall short of what God has for you. And we pray for these, these graduating seniors. It's an exciting time. But each and every one of us here, no matter how old or how young we are, God has a predetermined destiny for us. He has a plan. It said he called us for his purpose. We don't want to fall short. Nothing will be more fulfilling. Is Jesus your Savior? That's the first question you have to always answer. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Acknowledged you're a sinner? Accepted his death on the cross as your substitutionary death? Have you done that? And accepted the fact that he was raised from the dead, proving that your sins can be forgiven as you repent? Savior. He did all the work. If you've not done that, nothing I had to say today applies to you. But is he your Lord? Have we surrendered to him? He is Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, surrendering our life to him. I think that's something we need to do over and over and over. We get saved once, but we surrender often because we have a tendency sneak ourselves up into that throne. Say, I think I know better. The abundant life that we all want and God wants for us. When I say abundant life, yes, I'm talking about the blessing. But the abundant life is a life that brings glory and honor to God. That's what an abundant life really is. It says he created everything for his glory, including me and you. The abundant life and the surrendered life is what brings in that glory. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you and praise you for who you are and you declare us to be. God, I thank you that you offered us this amazing gift of salvation through Jesus and what he has done for us. And Father, I acknowledge, we acknowledge before you that he is Savior and he is Lord. God, that we are filled with the blessings, your blessings, as we surrender our lives to the Lordship, to the Kingship of Jesus. I pray that each one of us will ponder as your Holy Spirit prompts us, who is the King of our life? Are we surrendered? Have we accepted him as Savior and now acknowledge him as King? Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would continue to speak to each one of our hearts. Lord, we know this is a process, and we just thank you, Father, that that you give grace as we go through this process. Teach us what it means to surrender. Show us those areas of our lives where we are hanging on and not surrendering it to you. 
Lord, I pray that we would be able to walk in the greater abundant life to bring you more glory and more honor each and every day. Father, I pray now as we go from this place, we go as your ambassadors sent forth to the world to make disciples. Father, I pray you would watch over us, protect us, give us the grace to hear your voice, respond quickly in all the things that you would have us to do. Lord, we do pray that our lives bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen.